welcome to Cognation. I'm Joe Hardy. And I'm Rolf Nelson. On today's episode, we have a special guest, Dr. Eric Prather, who is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the University of California, San Francisco, where he co-directs the Aging, Metabolism, and Emotion Center. He is also a licensed clinical psychologist who helps lead the UCSF Insomnia Clinic, where he practices cognitive behavioral therapy to treat patients with insomnia. So he's got a robust uh, research program as well as a clinical program, and he also recently wrote a book. So we're going to talk a bit about his research and you know, a little bit about what he does in the sleep clinic. I think this is going to be an interesting topic for anyone who sleeps, which hopefully is everyone listening. Welcome, Eric. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, Eric, you want to tell us a little bit about, uh, yeah, sort of your background, how you got into what you're doing in sleep research? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to. Um, you know, so I've been at UCSF for kind of over a decade now. Um, but my interest in sleep really started when I was in graduate school. So I completed my graduate training at the University of Pittsburgh, which in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which actually has like a really kind of longstanding historic sleep medicine interest and kind of center there. Um, my training was specifically in something called psychoneuroimmunology, which is kind of a subfield of psychology and psychiatry that's interested in kind of psychological and behavioral factors that influence the immune system. And so when I started graduate school, I was really actually focused on stress and how it impact the immune system. And so we'd you know, do a lot of research where we'd bring people into the laboratory and stress them out, kind of draw their blood, and I would then take it into the lab and you know, try to understand what's happening with their cells or kind of proteins that were being produced and, and stuff like that. Um, and then you know, as I was continuing to do that, I was, I was starting to hear more about and read more about um, kind of these effects of sleep on the immune system. And in, interestingly, in the human literature, when you deprive individuals of sleep, they show a lot of the same sort of changes in the immune system that you see in the context of acute stress. And, you know, that was kind of interesting that that, that was going on in that sleep field. You know, for me, it was, there was this clear connection between stress and sleep, right? I mean, it's this bidirectional process. And so it seems strange to me that there were all these folks in the kind of the stress field, kind of focusing on the immune system and the sleep field, focusing on the immune system. And so, you know, I wanted to try to bridge that. And so, you know, as I kind of went through my graduate training, um, you know, I started talking to more and more sleep researchers. We integrated some sleep measures into the studies we were running. And that really kind of kicked it off for me. I kind of, you know, um, my my dissertation was on sleep and its impact on vaccination response, specifically antibody response to the hepatitis B vaccination series. And, you know, for many people who do, who have done dissertations, like oftentimes, like you do it, doesn't work out, you move on, you kind of figure something out. Mine actually was like very um, enlightening. And, you know, there was kind of this strong signal of kind of sleep duration predicting how well people responded to the hepatitis B vaccination series. And so I kind of carried on with that. You know, I mean, we ran other studies around vaccinations, looking at uh, other studies, looking at kind of susceptibility to infectious illness. And, um, you know, that kind of success kind of bred more and more investment in this area. And then as a clinical psychologist, you know, I, I certainly appreciated the role that sleep played in kind of mental health and our physical health and, and where there, it may be a leverage point 
to kind of improve lots of other things in people's lives. And so, you know, after graduate school at Pittsburgh, you have to do, as a clinical psychologist, you have to do kind of a one-year internship where you just do clinical work to, to graduate. And so uh, I, and it's a match system. So you kind of like, you know, visit a bunch of places, you rank them, and then the schools rank you. And then you get this letter, an email that just says like, you're going here. And so um, I ended up matching at Duke uh, University Medical Center. And so we moved for one year to Durham, North Carolina. And it turned out at Duke, uh, there was a, a supervisor there named Jack Edinger, who had been a pioneer in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. So I got training in that. And so then I was like, oh, wow, I have like all this sleep research. I know how it affects the immune system. And now we know what we can do with this, how we can impact people's lives with this kind of first line treatment for insomnia. And so, you know, when I went to UCSF uh, over the period of time that I've been there, you know, we've kind of continued with this sleep work. You know, we certainly do a lot of work on sleep and stress still and how it impacts kind of biological factors related to aging and kind of the immune system, but also kind of helped build this insomnia clinic so that we could get people the sleep they need. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about your thinking on the relation between sleep and stress. In your book, you talk about you know, how stress can affect sleep and how sleep can also affect stress levels too. Though sometimes the relationship might not be as strong as people think, that you, you can endure stressful events and they won't, you know, they can be absorbed and not necessarily affect your sleep. Um, but but sometimes they can. So how what's your What's your thinking on this? Yeah, the, I mean, it it was so so clearly we know that they're linked, right? Um, and the insomnia literature is kind of built on this idea that you know there's a stressor that happens to people, and you know that creates a, a period of sleep loss, and then there's kind of these perpetuating factors, these behavioral changes that kind of drive um, insomnia. And that feels, I mean, that feels uh, pretty natural to people. They you know say, I can't sleep because I'm so stressed out. Yeah, right, exactly. And so, but interestingly, if we kind of measure, and this is, our group has done this, but there's lots of kind of research studies around the country that have looked at this daily level stress and how it, well, it predicts their sleep at night. And it turns out that, you know, in many cases, kind of the amount of stress that someone experiences doesn't seem to be a very strong predictor of their sleep at night, um, with a couple of exceptions. So, you know, if the stressor is really big, right, like you get into like a car accident, or, you know, you know, something very, you know, you lose your job, right, those, those kind of those will have reverberations throughout the day throughout the night, right, it'll kind of get your mind really active and likely impact your ability to sleep. Or if the stressor happens kind of really close to bedtime, right? So we we've run experimental studies where we kind of stress people out right before bed and see what happens. And it turns out that, of course, you know, you do something really <laughs> bad to someone right before they go to sleep, like it's harder to sleep. Um, and, and related to that, it's particularly hard for people that are high ruminators, right? They already have this already have this tendency to kind of, you know, rethink, replay these experiences. And so that active mind will certainly get in the way. Um, but when they're kind of more modest stressors or kind of like daily hassles, it doesn't seem to make as big of a deal. And I think that's really largely due to the way in which sleep is regulated, right? We have kind of these strong underlying biological processes that, you know, ensure that people fall asleep, right? That kind of gate the experience of sleep and these environmental factors that really tell your body what's supposed to happen. And so, you know, little things may not make as big of a deal because those things play such an important role for people um, who, for sleeping. I think 
you know, there may be exceptions where if someone's kind of already a little anxious or, you know, more likely to be a ruminator, like those things that it may make those daily hassle stressors more powerful. But I think in general, and this is what the data suggests, that it's not as strong in that direction. Now, the other direction in which sleep impacts how people experience stress um, seems to be much stronger. And and again, it's this has kind of been done in like a numerous different kind of daily diary type studies where people kind of fill out, you know, questionnaires throughout the day. They kind of measure their sleep using, say, wrist actigraphy, which is kind of like a souped up Fitbit type model to get kind of research grade measures of, of sleep behavior. And in those instances, uh, across the board in general, that if people get less sleep than they typically do, um, they tend to be more reactive to stressors during the day. And in fact, their threshold for what they consider to be stressful is lower as well. So kind of little thing. I always, I always think of it as like little things feel like big things when you don't get the sleep you need, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of it impacts your brain. Um, experimental studies suggest that, you know, people have, you know, are more reactive to threat. Um, you know, there, there's kind of some neuroscience around kind of, you know, downregulation of the prefrontal cortex and, and all these sorts of things that seem to kind of put people on edge for for stressors because we just don't have kind of the capacity to cope in the same way that we do when we do get the sleep we need. I think that's interesting too, yeah, that for most people an average day that they think of as, you know, a work day or a stress day, we've got a few things on your mind. And, you know, if they didn't happen near bedtime, if you're not sort of unusually, uh, you know, prone to rumination, that that your sleep may be okay and that you can you can get by. Yeah. And I think also in terms of, you know, what you were saying there about uh, the impact of sleep then on stress and reactivity to stress, what I was thinking about when I was reading the book was, I mean, it's obviously it's hard to untangle what the causal relationship, causal direction, right? So that, my, you know, so I'm sure there is some good research there in terms of really pulling apart like what's driving what, right? Because you could imagine there might be a third factor, right? There's some underlying cause that's affecting both your stress response and your sleep response. So I'm wondering there, like, what what are some of the ways that you can know that it's actually sleep or lack of sleep that's driving the stress response versus some, you know, other causal factor, you know, that might in your life. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the primary way in which people attack this is with um, experimental studies, right? So where they manipulate the amount of sleep that someone gets. And so, so bring them into the lab and actually like poke them, make, don't let them sleep. Is that kind of how it works? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, (laughs) Um, you know, there are different, yeah, right. I mean, you know, right. So there's the kind of like the, the biggest hammer of kind of just not letting someone sleep all the time at all. Right. And so we're running a study right now where we are doing a full night of total sleep, a total sleep deprivation. And, and it's, it's, it's challenging. I'll be honest. It's challenging. It's challenging for people. We do a lot. I mean, it's, they're randomized to this, whether they, they get to sleep or not in the lab. And um, we have to do a lot of prep for these individuals so that they're prepared for this. Like, you know, what exactly would you do if you came into lab and were told you weren't able to sleep? Like, what would you do with your time? Like, you know, make a list, make a plan. Cause we have had instances where people will come in and they're randomized to sleep deprivation. And they're like, I'm out. Like, I'm not doing this. Like, you know, we're like, well, what, what do you mean? Like that was the whole study. And, that was the whole study. They're like, they're like, well, there was a 50, 50 chance and I lost. And so, you know, so it's, so, so, uh, because it is, it is challenging. And we've had, you know, we've certainly had instances where people have, you know, gotten, you know, four hours in and they're just like, I can't stay up anymore. 
I, you need to let me out of the study. And, and so we, you know, of course do that. And, but it's, you know, it's a lot of investment on our time and, and, and things like that for the study. But, um, but, you know, so that's one instance, uh, other examples are where they do kind of, um, they make people stay up till say three in the morning. Right. So that, so it's kind of partial sleep deprivation. Oftentimes studies will do this for multiple nights. So they'll kind of, it's like a partial sleep restriction study. So they do three nights of like four hour sleep opportunities. Um, or they'll do, um, you know, where they let people go to bed it. So they'll, or they'll wake them up at three, right? So they'll let them go to sleep and then they'll wake them up at three. And that, those are ways to try to get at kind of specific deprivation. So if you, if you, you know, when you go to sleep, the first half of your night is disproportionately slow wave sleep, kind of that deep restorative sleep. And so, um, and there's some circadian uh, rhythmicity to that. Um, and so if you deprive people of that first half of the night, you're actually shorting them a little bit on that slow wave sleep, where if you deprive it in the second half of the night, you're, you're more likely to short people on kind of REM sleep, which, which happens disproportionately in the second half of the night. So that actually, you know, that's both kind of cumulative sleep deprivation over days, but also in the, in the acute setting can be kind of try to get at some of the specificity about what it is, what is it about sleep that, that might be important, right? Um, and then, you know, and then more recently, people have been moving into models where they try to get people to do sleep deprivation at home, right? And so, so we've kind of worked with the in this space. And it's, it's really hard to know if people are really being sleep deprived, but we'll do things like people will have to check in every 15 minutes, mm -hmm. or every 30 minutes, right, either by text or by email, so that you know that they're like alert during this, during at least those times, like you can't know for sure. Um, an alternative would be, you know, if we could put people to send people home with um, you know, single lead EEG that they can wear so that we can actually track brain activity around sleep and wake, um, you know, and, and I think as those devices become more easily accessible and cheaper, that's what people will move towards, um, as a way, a way of getting kind of in-home kind of, uh, polysomnography, which is, you know, the, the gold standard for understanding sleep physiology. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. It, it, it's, it's, uh, that must be challenging as a researcher to like have to, <laughs> also be up all night watching people yeah. do it <laughs> it's funny i uh yeah you know like it's i have to say you know I, I think part of it is for me um as i mentioned in the beginning like i didn't come into sleep as like a sleep researcher like i've always and i've i've kind of tried to maintain though you know i'm slipping slipping farther down into kind of the the <laughs> the sleep world where I'm like kind of like seen as this sleep person. But I, you know, I'd always, I'd always thought about, you know, I'm interested in sleep because it's important for health. And I really care about health, right? And like, but sleep is something that we know how to, to, to work on. We, you know, we have tools to, to move it around. And so, you know, that's a really great entry point. And people don't mind talking about sleep, right? It's like, unlike talking about depression or anxiety, like it's a great entry point. Um, to, to understanding someone's life. And my clinical experience is if you give someone their sleep back, like so much of their life improves. It's amazing. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, it's like kind of selfish. I'm like, I like how I feel when I give people their sleep back. And so that's why I, I keep doing it. But but you're right, like it, doing sleep research is challenging. Um, I thankfully am not the person that's in the lab, like staying up all night. I am no, I'm very much not a night owl. Like I go to bed early. I, I like sunrises. I'm like, I'm just not for that world. But, uh, you know, thankfully we have people on staff that, that do do it. And, uh, and, you know, I'm so grateful to them, it, it, especially our coordinators who, you know, are also not sleep techs. They don't stay up all night, but they do have to do these really hard hours to, to manage this. And, and, and just, uh, 
kind of getting this stuff off the ground um, has been hard. Uh, you know, we only it was only a couple of years ago, maybe five years ago, where I started doing in lab work. And um, so bringing people into the sleep lab, measuring it part and largely due for this kind of this research study that we've been running over the last five years. And, um, you know, I, I thought I knew what I was getting into. And I, I, you know, it's been like a little bit of a learning curve. And I've been really grateful to like, I've had postdocs and stuff who've come from kind of, you know, hardcore sleep medicine training programs um, that have kind of disabused me of some of the, the, the things that I thought were kind of like, how things worked like no they're like no no this is not how you do it and i'm like okay great well glad you're here thank you for <laughs> for helping me <laughs> well this is interesting so it seems i mean you you've gotten into the sleep research when i think it's been a really hot topic recently yeah. right? i think it's something that a lot more people are aware of uh, matthew walker's book has um been on the bestseller list and i think a lot of people are familiar with some of the you know the basics of why sleep is important so i it seems like you jumped in at the right time so you, you're you were talking about relationship of stress and sleep, and so so different sorts of sleep. So whether it's uh, deep wave sleep or REM sleep or lighter or lighter cycle sleep, is there an importance for one or the other in general? What are people lacking that that causes stress, and how how does this relationship work? Is it something that you can recover from fairly quickly, or is it cumulative or you know, so many, I guess that's too many questions in one, but. No, I mean, they're, you know, but they're all really great questions. Um, you know, I mean, I think we, in a lot of ways, we kind of speculate on what we, you know, what is important. Um, you know, I mean, uh, sleep architecture, and I think that's one of the kind of innovations that I think will happen over the next five so years as people start to look at um, kind of much more granular ways of understanding kind of, uh, you know, EEG in kind of like a high dimensional way. Um, because I think there's a lot there that we don't quite understand. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, I think in general, slow wave sleep, um, is, is thought to play an important role in kind of recovery and restoration. Um, and there is some, some evidence to support that. I think one of the things that, um, is most notable is that when people are sleep deprived, um, the first thing that happens as soon as they go to sleep is they drop into deep sleep. Um, mm. And so the you know, the interpretation has been, well, like that's the thing that the body is prioritizing. Like that that's like the first thing it wants to get off its plate because it hasn't had the sleep that an individual is needed. Yeah, um, like a rebound, sort of a rebound. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I mean, we, we are learning more about what other aspects of, of sleep do, right? So like REM sleep has been kind of implicated in um, kind of emotional memory consolidation. And, and certainly kind of sleep spindles seem to play an important role in learning and, 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 and those sorts of things. And so they are, you know, people are identifying kind of markers within um, the sleep architecture that seem to be particularly relevant to cognition. Um, you know, there's been growing interest in slow wave oscillations um, and people trying to develop devices that can try to gate those uh, to, to improve, say, cognitive function and stuff like that. And, you know, there has been a little bit of success uh, in that arena. I think I think it's just another example of how we're trying to kind of dig deeper into um, kind of the brain electricity uh, outputs that, that, that we can actually, um, kind of use for, you know, specific, um, outcomes. Um, 
and and so so I mean I that's that's my answer to that. I I I'll admit I there were a lot of questions in there, and so I I'm not <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I've, I was I was also just sort of personally curious about say you know say you st- let's just give an example. Say you yeah. stay up until three a.m. and get up at six a.m. Is it um, so? You know, subjectively, you probably feel crappy, you feel a little stressed out, um, and maybe your cortisol levels are elevated. I don't know what else goes along with this, but um, what might you see from something like that? Yeah, I mean, you know, people, you know, so subjectively, obviously, people feel kind of down. Um, they more fatigued. Uh, oftentimes, an individual's mood is a little bit, um, you know, impaired. Uh, I think though, you know, with that one, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, though, though, I will say that, you know, oftentimes when we deprive people of sleep at night, they actually get kind of giddy towards the early part of the morning. Right. So there is this like shift in, in kind of affect that way. Um, and then people often get like a, like a, like a second wind, um, which is driven by kind of your circadian uptick of alertness that happens. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, you know, certainly people often show kind of, you know, changes in kind of autonomic functioning, right? So their heart rate variability might be a lower, um, you know, their cortisol might be higher, um, you know, and, and, but then there's all these kind of cognitive changes, right? So that people have difficulty potentially with word finding, attention, reaction time, um, you know, brain fog is, is something that we see commonly when people that have insomnia that, you know, report kind of chronic difficulties in sleeping. Um, and so that's, you know, in the acute setting, you had asked about kind of whether there was a cumulative effect. Um, you know, so when people sleep, uh, our, you know, I take the sense that, you know, our body tries to compensate for that, right? I mean, you know, we do, ten, when people have a bad night of sleep, the next night tends to be better. Um, you know, they, they fall asleep faster. Their, their sleep might be deeper um, as a way of trying to make up for that loss. Um, but, I mean, you know, the the population level data suggests that kind of chronic uh, insufficient sleep is a risk factor for a whole host of negative health outcomes from, you know, cardiovascular disease and uh, metabolic conditions like type 2 diabetes, and then kind of growing um, evidence that it may be implicated in the development of the early development of neurodegenerative diseases, um, you know, among other things, right? So like our work has shown that people are more susceptible to infections. And, and obviously, that's taken on a, a whole new um, life with, uh, with a pandemic. And so, you know, and, and the idea is that, that, you know, there is a wear and tear that happens on the body that you're, you know, when you, and you know, this, when you, when you deprive someone of sleep, you know, you see you deprive them of eight, eight hours of sleep, right. And then you let them sleep for as long as they want. They don't sleep for 16 hours, right? like your body, you know, the, ch- it changes the way in which someone makes up that sleep. And the thought is that perhaps, perhaps over time, there's just a cumulative cost. Um, and the cost is in, in the currency of health. Right. And so that that would be, you know, how how we're doing that now. Like, it's not to say that our population level data is perfect, because honestly, it's usually like a one item question that is just asked to thousands and thousands of people. So we you know, we have good statistical power, but the kind of the the way in which it's, you know, we're we're not measuring sleep per se, we're measuring kind of self-reported experience of sleep on average. Right. And we know that sleep is so variable over time. I mean, you know, there was, you know, stuff in the news just recently about uh, social jet lag, right? And social jet lag might be something that predicts long-term health as well. And it's incredibly common. And that's that that really gets at this variability that people have during the week um, that that is not captured typically in these one-item measures, right? So, um, but I mean, on the whole, though, if you kind of take the literature 
you know, as as kind of a big wide in a wide net, it certainly suggests that people who get, you know, less than seven hours, people especially on the short end of like six, five hours on average, those are the ones that are at risk for lots of things. So yeah, so not only are you feeling crappy in the morning, but it is cumulative and you're going to experience a lot of negative health consequences over your life. Um, and yeah, I think that's something people are, you know, starting to pick up on too and and why people are seeing sleep as a more central uh, component of overall health. Yeah. And I think also, isn't it the case that like, uh, or it seems like, let me ask the question. It seems like people are experiencing more problems with sleep today than they were like in the past, like the, certainly <laughs> yeah. like the, the, the distant past, right? Like, uh, you know, our human beings have evolved. We need to sleep. Uh, but somehow many, many people experience problems with this in, in a modern society. And I mean, do you have thoughts on like why that is today or is it, well, first of all, is it true that it's worse today than it was say 400 years ago? And then, well, you know, <laughs> uh, I mean, it does seem like it's worse today. I don't know for certain that it's different from than 400 years ago. Um, the records are, are less clear, I guess, sure. but, but, sure. um, but I mean, over, you know, there's certainly evidence to, to suggest that say sh- insufficient sleep, right? So that's, that's like one thing that we can agree upon and that because we have a definition. Um, and so in that case, so, so the center for disease control, it's, it's, less than seven hours of sleep for an adult. Um, right. And so if people are sleeping, they're considered to have getting kind of have sleep insufficiency. And that has increased over the decade for sure. Um, the percentage of adults that were even just over that. the last 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, and it's not, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's something like, you know, like in the 30 percent, I don't know the exact percent, but it's, you know, it's, but you know, if you scale that up to like the size of the population, it's really a lot, right? Like it's like almost like a hundred million people. Um, and so that are, that are, you know, chronically getting insufficient amounts of sleep. Like the reason for that, I think is complex. I mean, and I think um, it's not only complex in what's causing it because, but I also think it, it is, um, I, I like to say like sleep opportunity is not evenly distributed across the population, right? There are like certain segments of the population that are more affected than others. Um, and so there are like social determinants that kind of drive those changes or drive those those proportions. What would be an example of, of a disparity there? Yeah, so I mean, uh, there's a, a, a strong um, racial disparity in sleep duration. Um, and so, um, and this is a lot of the work that we are currently doing where you know black americans are significantly more likely to be short sleepers compared to white americans mm-hmm. um and you know and that and those those disparities those racial sleep disparities map onto similar kind of racial health disparities that we see in the population so it kind of raises this idea like oh well we know that sleep is related to cardiovascular risk we know there's disparity in in cardiovascular disease outcomes by black and white uh, groups and by sleep groups, like maybe this is one of the contributing factors. It's certainly not the only thing, um, but you know we've been trying to understand these these racial health disparities, and, and particularly with a lens of focusing on sleep. Um, but and so that so that's an example. But um, you know I think there are lots of different things that contribute to um, kind of this lack of sleep. I mean I think some of it is kind of societal norms, right? About kind of the the priority of productivity over rest. 
Um, I think that's like a very Western type thing. And I, I don't think anyone would necessarily dispute that as, as something that might contribute to it. Um, you know, I think there are the obviously certain policies that kind of contribute to this challenge. So, you know, um, you know, work, workplace policies around commuting times or for shift workers and, and kind of number of hours that they can work perhaps might contribute to insufficient amounts of sleep. School start times is certainly something that we talk a lot about in the sleep community uh, mm-hmm. that, that contribute to insufficient sleep among adolescents. Um, you know, there, there's often just um, the tendency for people to put sleep on kind of the last thing on their list to kind of get done. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's this kind of emerging ex- you know, phenomenon of revenge bedtime procrastination uh, that people are actually putting off sleep, right? Um, and, and I think that really speaks to kind of the lack of autonomy that people might feel that they have in their lives. And that, you know, that speaks to kind of what, you know, what, what someone's daytime is like, right? And it's like, it, it ends up being at a cost to sleep, but the that's not because they don't want sleep or don't appreciate sleep. It's like, it's just really hard to manage all the things that are going on in our lives. Um, you know, I think, yeah, I think there's lots of different things. I mean, and, and you're also right that kind of the interest in sleep has, has grown over time too. And I think that's a really great thing. I mean, when I started doing this, I mean, you know, I feel like you were kind of like clawing our ways to like try to get a seat at the table, but just this year, um, you know, the American Heart Association has kind of these seven things that are important for heart health. And this year they added sleep as an eighth one. Like they, for years they had had just seven and sleep finally made it on. And and that's a really big deal for people that kind of study cardiovascular disease and, and want to get this information out to people that are worried about their heart health. Right. Um, but you know, I think the development of wearable technology that is focused on sleep has really captured the imagination of people, right? They like can track their sleep. They know their experience, but they they can see the data and and the kind of the moving from kind of the niche quantified self movement into yeah, kind yeah, of the population level is has made a big deal. I think um, you know books like Why We Sleep. You know that 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 really was a game changer for the sleep field. I mean, you know Matt Walker, who who I like, you know have have had the luxury of like working with over the years. Um, you know it's incredible. I mean, it, you know, I, it, it's not that it hasn't kind of made some people anxious about their sleep. Cause that's absolutely also true. But I mean, I think, you know, in general, it has, you know, raised the profile of sleep, um, as a discipline as, a, and as like a key piece of our, um, being and health in, in ways that, um, other things haven't. And so that's, that's really exciting too. Yeah. And I think people are more aware of things like sleep hygiene, uh, keeping, know, keeping regular hours and, and some of some of the things that you point out in your book. One of the so uh, we had an episode a while ago on the effects of, of blue light on sleep. And um, I, I like the perspective that your book takes, because I think this is probably closer to the truth that blue light is not a, it's not going to be a decisive factor likely in your sleep. It's going to be a could be a small contributing factor. Um, it it will affect melatonin levels, but it there are probably a lot of other things that are going to have much more of an effect. So to focus on this exclusively and and think that if you're just filtering out blue light, you know you can still look at Twitter and all that stuff um, is probably the wrong way to think about it. Yeah. So I mean, right. So I want to say there is absolutely evidence 
that blue light exposure can you know downregulate melatonin secretion and for people that are really sensitive to that it can make it can be a it can make a big difference in kind of their circadian rhythm and the quality of their sleep um i guess yeah my my response is has historically been that you know like it like an industry was created around blue light and like keeping it out of out of people's eyes right and and and, and i think there's <clears throat> in a lot of ways that 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 is what drives some of the discussion around how important this is um, because, you know, the content that people are consuming is much more likely to be impacting their ability to sleep. Um, you know, things like social media, the internet, everything that, that, you know, blue light is, is on um, particularly on our devices they're, they're they exist to kind of keep people engaged, right? Like they're developed to keep you coming back. Um, you know, the number of hours that my wife spends listen, watching TikTok at night is like all, you know, I, all, that's all I have to see every, every single night to know that like it, it's working, um, even if the night shift filter is on and yeah, it's really, so it's really more the, uh, thoughts racing, uh, cognitive sort of effect that, uh, you know, it's yeah, both I, because we know, we know there's regulation of melatonin, but, um, yeah, but I think that fits with experience too, um, you know, people may be less aware of the blue light at sometimes, but um, they're very aware of what they're thinking about when they're looking at social media, uh, and and that those those thoughts racing, uh, rumination. Um. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that's that's part of it, but I mean, I think it's just like the reward processing, like mm, that, those that, kind of like those dopamine hits, like at every video that you see or whatever. Um, that it, it's like not even it's not even like conscious thinking; it's like engagement. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's and like that is incompatible with sleeping. Um, and so, you know, that's why, you know, I think almost by definition. Every, right. Yeah. yeah <laughs> right. Exactly. And so, like, you know, I mean, it's we you know want to make sure that everybody has, you know, if they're doing devices, if they you know, if they if they are sensitive to blue light, like putting these night shift filters on. I mean, it's great that we have them, but uh, to assume that that's going to solve the problem um, is, is, uh, is faulty. And so, um, kind of really focusing on what content people are consuming, uh, with the, with the goal towards, you know, winding down, right. Like kind of something that's kind of like facilitates relaxation versus something that like, you're like, can't wait for the next thing so that you can kind right. of, uh, and the hours go by all of a sudden. Yeah. Well, that might be a good lead into starting to talk about, you know, we've talked a bit about sort of the study of sleep and some of the problems associated when you don't get enough sleep uh, and some of the causes of you know, preventing sleep, things like that might be good to start to get into your book and talk a little bit about some of the ways that you can help yourself get better sleep. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, I mean, I've like provide like a little, a little context. So, um, so this book is part of a series. Um, and so, and, so and they're all developed around this like seven day model, um, and so there's like one on love um, by uh, John and Julie Gottman, who are kind of like very mm -hmm. famous for doing kind of couples work. And then um, my uh, co-conspirator in in the lab that we run, uh, Alyssa Apple, uh, wrote one on stress, right? And so these are all kind of it's kind of set up that way. Um, and so given that model, what I attempted to do was distill principles from cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia um, to, to kind of help people 
you know, understand kind of both the science of sleep and what regulates it, but what things we can do in our lives that can put us in the best position to get a good night's sleep. Um, and so, you know, I, whenever the, like the seven day thing comes up, I always kind of like bristle a little bit because it's, you know, that it's, it's, it's like the expectation isn't necessarily, I mean, for some people that might be true, but it's, it, you know, and that's why the, the last chapter is called, you know, this is the beginning, not the end. Because when right. we do this in clinic, it's not seven days, right? Like it's like five weeks or something. And all the work happens in between our meetings. And so each one of those uh, seven days have kind of a, a tool that we layer on um, in clinic each week. But we did it in kind of in a, in a more contracted period for this. But, um, you know, with them all layered on and with the sleep diary that is included in the book that people can use to track their sleep, it can provide kind of a an insight into kind of how that individual's sleep is regulated and using the tools can hopefully get their sleep back on track. Yeah, maybe that, may, that makes sense. Maybe we take a step back and talk a little bit. You mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Maybe mention a little bit about what that is. And then you talked about the sleep diary and that seemed like a really important thing in the book. Maybe you can talk about what that is and why that's important. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, cognitive behavioral th therapy for insomnia. So that, I mean, for, so CBTI is what people say. Um, you know, it, there's lots of cognitive behavioral therapy models, right? For depression, anxiety, you know, panic disorder, what have you. And and this one is sort of similar, though there's a big emphasis on the behavioral component. Um, and so, you know, that's what we t tend to lead with, though the cognitive part is is kind of interspersed throughout for sure. And, and CBTI is kind of well-recognized as the first-line treatment for insomnia. So like the American College of Physicians recommends this. Every, every kind of like recommending body knows that this is true, though you know, admittedly, rarely is it the first thing that people try, right? I mean, they, they go to their primary care physician, they have insomnia, and like the primary care physician understandably doesn't know where to send someone for CBTI. There's just not enough providers and, you know, the, the digital tools that are coming out aren't kind of easily accessible currently and, and all those sorts of things. And so they end up kind of being on medication typically. But, um, you know, what CBTI does is it really addresses um, the underlying processes that often go awry when people have insomnia. So kind of, um, you know, this is in the context of, so there's always the sleep hygiene component that everyone, most people have heard about, but there's also um, around kind of sleep, like scheduling um, kind of your wake time and trying to set in line your, the two primary regulatory mechanisms of sleep, which are your circadian rhythm and your homeostatic sleep drive, which we, we might get into, but, um, but then also really trying to um, help make things more predictable for your body. So one of the things that happens with people with insomnia is they spend a lot of time in bed not sleeping. And that actually plays an important role in kind of fracturing the relationship between your body and the bed because the bed is actually, turns out to be like a really incredible, important environmental trigger for bringing on sleepiness. But when people spend lots of times in bed, not sleeping, it, your body gets confused, basically. And so there's this conditioned arousal that develops. And so we kind of work on scheduling people sleep better, um, uh, you know, working on that conditioned arousal uh, and then, you know, tr tr you know, providing people with strategies for managing stress, for, you know, facilitating relaxation. Um, and then, you know, oftentimes we end up actually moving people's bedtimes back later to amplify that homeostatic sleep drive 
so that which which is kind of our drive, our need to sleep, which often helps people kind of be reacquainted with that feeling of sleepiness. So, you know, oftentimes people that I meet with insomnia, even though they have really bad nights of sleep all the time, they d- they don't ever describe themselves as sleepy. They just feel tired, right? Mm-hmm. And like mm-hmm. they, they, they can't remember the last time they felt sleepy, right? And so this kind of by working on this, these strategies, we can kind of try to leverage the biology to bring back that experience of sleepiness. And it's like such a welcomed kind of friend that they haven't seen in so long, right? Um, and and then, so that, those are the behavioral components and the cognitive components. So there's the strategies for helping people more manage their worry and, and, and things like that. But there's also, you know, when people have really bad nights of sleep, they they begin to really think the worst, right? I mean, they they really begin to to catastrophize about kind of what happens if they don't get a night of sleep. They use a lot of mental effort during the day trying to figure out like, oh my God, like, should I go to this thing tonight or not? Because I don't know if I'm going to be able to sleep. And and those types of that kind of anxiety really feeds on itself and, and ensures a kind of a bad night of sleep, right? So we kind of go through kind of cognitive strategies to try to understand like, what is the real evidence around these cognitions? How do they make you feel? If we thought about it a different way, would that kind of change the outcome? And that that's really in line with kind of like classic cognitive behavioral therapy. And so, and, and, and it does seem like, you know, addressing those cognitions seem to be kind of the things that stick with people for the long term. And so it's really important to address those. Oftentimes when we do the behavioral strategies and people begin sleeping better, they 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 grow in confidence, right? They begin to do it on their own. They begin like, oh, you know, I I guess I can sleep. It's not lost to me. And and then then it's a matter of kind of working on kind of, you know, a bad night doesn't mean like you're going to be an insomniac again, right? Like everyone has bad nights. But when you have insomnia, it do, it feels like you're the one that is broken, right? Versus re- reflecting on the fact that like sleep is variable, right? Um, so that's that's CBTI, and one of the pieces that's really critical to it is the sleep diary, okay? And and that's that's because and this is something like I, I say commonly is you know sleep is really universal, but it's also really personal, right? There are like specific things to you. We know how sleep works, but there are things that are like specific to your life that will be critical for understanding how to get your sleep back on track. And a lot of it has to do with kind of how variable sleep is from night to night. And so the sleep diary um, has, you know, typically has um, information about kind of when people go to bed, what time, how long it takes them to fall asleep, how many times they wake up in the middle of the night, how long they're awake in total, and then what time they wake up in the morning and kind of the quality of their sleep. Um, sometimes we have evening components about like what medications you took, how much alcohol you had, you know, your, whether you exercised or not, those, those kind of things, which, which also can be important information. But, you know, what we do is we kind of track that over the course of the week to really understand, um, you know, both kind of where people are at baseline and how much time they're spending in bed, not sleeping so that we can kind of shift their, um, sleep schedule. Um, but also it allows us to, as we layer on these treatment strategies, what effect are they having, right? So we layer them on and then we can see over time like, oh, we move this thing, you know, th- you know, your sleep on average improves. It also helps us, um, I-, I think it helps individuals get some insight into their sleep because when you have a bad night of sleep, you know, that's the thing that sticks in your mind, right? But if when you see it all laid out across the week and you average it, then you begin to see like, oh, look, like I had a bad night, but on average, my sleep is actually pretty good, right? And it doesn't take away from the fact that 
you know, a bad night is terrible, right? Like no one likes that. I mean, I'm sure all of us on this call have had like some nights of insomnia where we're like, had to get through the day. But, you know, when you can see that it's that on par, you know, you're, you're doing okay, you know, on average, and, and you're kind of moving towards something, you can kind of track it over time, that that also builds confidence that helps kind of, you know, chip away at some of those negative cognitions. So I think the sleep diary is critical and often, you know, largely because people are just like not good reporters of their sleep, right? Like we kind of have this recency effect where we like, you know, remember like last night maybe, or we, you know, often hold on to exceptions, right? As our metric of like what our sleep is like, right? So, um, and I'll just say one more thing that like, oftentimes with people with insomnia, they both kind of their cat catastrophic thinking is often tied to kind of the worst night of sleep they've ever had. Right. And like, that's the thing that they fear, right? Like it's understandably, but it's so rare. Right. And so they, they, but that's what they think is going to happen. And at the same time, they've also probably had an exceptional night of sleep, right? You, we all know that kind of sleep, like where you fall asleep and you wake up in the same position that you like went to sleep in and like, you didn't wake up at all and you feel like a million bucks. And it's like, and so then that becomes like their metric for like what a good night of sleep is. And so, but they're both exceptional right on both sides. And so the sleep diary actually allows us to see kind of the variability um, and, and, and kind of helps people kind of shift their, their mindset around what the ex what, what are the expectations for what, what, what healthy sleep looks like? So, okay. So there's lots of different components to this. And I think um, in your book, you talk about uh, kinds of treatments that go from um, relatively minor to pretty major life shifts. I think you mentioned um, a patient that you had that uh, had to switch jobs in order to in order to change your sleep cycle. And it, and it can be a, a fairly major shift. I'm wondering, you know, uh, of all these different treatments uh, or, or things that can be done, um, you know, what the sort of first advice that you give to people? And and I guess one of the things that you, you were pushing strongly in the book, and it and which maybe as people are less aware of is uh, getting up at the same time or being consistent about getting up in the morning can have a, an enormous effect. And, you know, that's not as intuitive as, as uh, you know, having lots of sleep or, you know, our general thoughts about sleep. So um, why is, why is getting yeah. up at the same time important? Right, right. And that's, I mean, that's definitely how we start out the book. And, and in fact, that's, that's like always the first thing that I tell people if they're having trouble with their sleep. Um, and, and it has to do with the f t two things. I mean, so one, um, when people get up at the same time each day, it helps entrain your circadian rhythm. And that's really important for kind of, um, kind of a well-regulated system because the circadian rhythm is such an important piece of, um, of kind of sleep regulation. Um, also it, it focuses on something that we can control, right? So one of the things that people with insomnia often hear is that they should have a, a also have a bedtime that they go to sleep at every night. Right. And that's, um, and that, that actually puts a lot of pressure on someone with insomnia, right? If you say, okay, you need to be in bed by, you need to be asleep by 10, they're going to be sitting and watching the clock, like tick by and realizing like, oh my gosh, like three more minutes, two more minutes, one more minute. Um, and that can actually amplify, um, the anxiety around sleep. And so, you know, we focus on setting a standard wake up time one, because it kind of sets your in line, your day, right? Like your circadian rhythm, it also kind of sets that when you, we, when your 
sleep drive will begin, right? So your homeostatic sleep drive, I, I talk to talk about it like a balloon that like fills up with sleepiness and, you know, the sleepiness that at the neurochemical level seems to be adenosine um, that builds up in the brain across the day. But we, we use similar amounts of energy from day to day. And so if you get up at the same time every day, um, you're more likely to get sleepy around the same time each night. And so your bedtime will become more, will become regulated that way. But, um, you know, it's a great principle that you can, you can enact that, that we typically can control, have control over and um, makes seems tough to wake up at, you know, the, you know, whatever time you choose to wake up consistently at that time. But so I, so I, I will say that, like, you know, I get it, obviously, as you might imagine, like get a fair amount of pushback and like, well, like I like to sleep in on the weekends. Like, what are you talking about? And I, yeah. and I get I totally get that. And, um, you know, that does speak to kind of the type of sleep debt that people are carrying. Right. Um, that and it and it's you know, that's another thing that we can you know, people can potentially address of like, why? Why do you need to sleep in? Um, but, uh, you know, th- these kind of recommendations are really for people that are having trouble with sleep. Right. So if, if like you have a sleep debt and you have the opportunity to sleep in on the weekend, um, you know, we know that like, you know, sleep debts aren't great and kind of this social jet lag aren't great. But like if you need more sleep, you can get it. Um, but if you're having trouble sleeping, like this is something that you can take control over that is, um, you know, focused in 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 the morning, which is less close in time proximally to like the thing that you're fearing which is like bedtime, right? So so it's like the first thing you can do when you wake up in the morning that can set things in motion that you can then layer on throughout the day um, is a good strategy. But yeah, obviously um, not everybody, it is, it is hard. And, um, you know, have, those, you may have those, like you say, you may have those ruminations at night that may be a little more challenging to control, at least in the morning, you know, however painful it is, you, you're awake and you can get up and <laughs> get out of bed. It is under your control. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I think it does raise an important thing because I mean, raising rumination, like people can have bad nights of sleep and, but then they ha- still have to get up at the same time each day. Right. And I think that's one of the things that's important to address because, um, for people that have insomnia, when they have a bad night of sleep, right. They, they especially the, on the extreme end, they may sleep in like several hours later to kind of make up for that. Right. If they have the opportunity. I mean, I've had certainly had patients that like, will just cancel off work because they had a bad night of sleep and then sleep in longer. And that just reinforces this anxiety. It throws off the system. And then it kind of, it, it, it also has implications for that following night because you've now like slept in a lot later, your rhythm is thrown off and, and then it makes it harder to fall asleep that night. But if you get up at that same time, despite having a bad night, you know, your body will take care of you, right? Like you'll, you'll, one of the important shifts that people have to make in, um, in treatment for insomnia, at least with CBTI is, you know, it's not about tonight's sleep, right? Like we can, we can only do so much to like put ourselves in the best position to sleep well. Um, but we're working towards improving our sleep on average, right? That like, if we do these things on average, our sleep will get better, but we can't put all the pressure on tonight. And maybe that's a little harder for people to see those, those uh, longer, slightly longer term consequences than, than, you know, what they're feeling immediately, which is horrible or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's where the sleep diary is important, right? Like, cause then you can actually see it. Um, and you can see that, you know, like if you, even if you had a bad night of sleep, you can see in the data that in most cases, people like have a better night the next night and that their average will improve kind of, and, and the metric that we often use is something called sleep efficiency, 
And so that's like the amount of sleep that someone gets for a given opportunity. And so, you know, if you, you know, go to bed at 10 and get up at six, right? So that's uh, eight hours and you're asleep that whole time, you know, full eight hours, it's like a hundred percent efficiency, right? But if you're only awake, if you're awake for four of those hours, then your efficiency is 50%. Um, and so what we want to try to get people up to is like 85%. If, if they're under 65 and once we get to 65, then it's like 80% is, is kind of more normative. Um, and when we do that by kind of pushing their bedtime later, so we're like constraining the denominator, right. Um, which will increase the efficiency, but, and so that will kind of cut out some of that wakefulness, um, trying to get to sleep, or it'll cut out some of that wakefulness in the middle of the night. Um, because people often will just spend extra time in bed because, um, of this fear of, you know, people will give themselves like 12 hours in bed to get that eight hours. But, you know, guess what? You can't make 12 hours of sleep. And so you're kind of assuring yourself that for most people, it's like four hours of wakefulness somewhere in that window. And that's what we want to try to try to work on with people with insomnia. You're starting to get a couple of hours of that really good sleep and then maybe extending it past then. So they start out it's a little it's a little tough going going to bed later. And then as they're able to as they're able to um control some of these things then being able to uh, gradually increase their sleep time with the same efficiency. So, right. So what, what, what we do is we'll constrict it. Um, it's called time in bed restriction or sleep restriction. Some people call it. Um, and, and to increase their efficiency. And then once we're able to do that, we will like slowly move their bedtime a little bit earlier, a little bit earlier, a little bit earlier, but we'll continue to track it with the sleep diary until we get to some kind of optimal level where they're still having high efficiency um, and they're getting more sleep. Even, even in that contracted amount, you know, people tend to report kind of feeling better because their sleep is in kind of like one big bolus compared to that same amount of sleep broken up, right? Like there's something about the continuity that's really important. Um, and so, you know, oftentimes though, even when we do this procedure and then we move people's bedtimes earlier slowly, it ends up being later than they were before, right? Like people often, as as a way of trying to get their sleep on track, will go to bed earlier. And so, you know, we end up finding it in the data and that's, you know, then we have to kind of come up with some kind of, you know, compromise about like, okay, well, this is what the data suggests. Like, are you able to just stick with this? Or if your sleep gets off track, like move it back to this, you know, things like that. Yeah, it seems like one of the themes that comes out of this is actually related back to the sleep hygiene idea of, not spending a lot of time in bed, not sleeping. So when you're in bed, you want to be sleeping. What's the the theory behind that? It's, I seem to remember how there was some uh, some idea that has something to do with what with with conditioning. So is it like operant conditioning, classical conditioning? How does that work? Yeah, it would be. Yeah, it falls under the umbrella of classical conditioning. I mean, you think of like Pavlov's dog, um, you know, and the the idea that um, you're kind of pairing. Um, the feeling of sleepiness with the bed, right? And so when people are sleeping well, you know, they feel sleepy when they go to bed, but kind of the actual, the process of getting in bed is like a hammer that comes down on someone that like allows your body to let go and allows you to sleep. Mm -hmm. um, and then the opposite happens when people have sleep disturbances, particularly in the context of, of insomnia. And, and so often, I will have patients that say, you know, I was, you know, I was feeling really sleepy. Then I got in bed and my brain woke up. And that's like the conditioned response that has, has developed from kind of so much time kind of having difficulty sleeping and being in bed. You've kind of like 
you know, fractured that relationship that was so important for bringing on that experience of sleep. Um, because, you know, honestly, like sleep is doesn't, you know, it's so critical for our health. But, you know, in a lot of ways, it doesn't seem like the most adaptive thing that you can be doing, right? Like, it's like, you know, you kind of drop off from the world, like you're kind of, you know, in this kind of vulnerable state. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, but it but these environmental things really help tell you when you should be doing that. Um, and the bed is, is, is that thing. And so um, when we try to address this problem, um, we actually kind of, first, we have to break the relationship of the kind of distress and the bed, right? So we like, when people are kind of spending excess time in bed awake, not sleeping, to be like more than 20 minutes, for instance, we'll have people like get out of bed. And again, Rolf, this is actually a really hard thing to get people to do. Like no one wants to do this, but um, get out of bed. And then they kind of go somewhere quiet, you know, try to facilitate kind of sleepiness on their part, kind of whatever works for them. But, you know, we usually give like a list of different things like reading or like listening to music or podcasts or whatever, things that are like, but they aren't so engaging that you're going to like stay up all night doing it um, until you begin to feel sleepy again. And then you want to repair that feeling with the bed. And it does, you know, in the, in the, in the initial times, it's, it's definitely this back and forth. It's kind of like a dance. Like you, you, you know, get out of bed, you feel sleepy, you get back in bed, your brain wakes up. And I, I always say that like, well, so that's like really good evidence. This is a problem, right? Like there it is. You've just experienced this problem in an acute setting. Like clearly we need to address this. And then they get back out of bed and then they get back in. And then, but over time it, it rebuild, you rebuild this relationship. And for some people it's, it doesn't take long at all, but for others, it's, it's a little bit more of a challenge. Um, and, uh, it's just, it's really kind of foundational to how insomnia works. And so that, that treatment is called stimulus control, but, um, and it, and it really is an, an, an important part of, of how we get people sleeping better. Yeah. That is a fascinating thing. One that people, you know, normally would be unaware of that this is going on that, you know, that when they enter the bed, their body's doing something in reaction to that, that has something to do with sleep, preparing them for it or stopping them from it. Um, and just maybe being aware of that connection uh, is is uh, helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get out of bed if you're if you're just you know lying in it too long without sleeping. Yeah, I mean it does take a little bit of um, one convincing, right? I mean, especially as it gets towards the winter, like no one wants to do it, and and there are ways to adapt it, right? I mean, like I see lots of like our clinic is is uh, housed in neurology, and so you know we get people with like lots of chronic pain conditions or kind of other things that keep that, I mean, or living in San Francisco where, you know, your bed is your couch, is your table, is your office desk, you know, it's uh, often oh, hard to find another, yeah, hard yeah, to find yeah. another place. And so, um, but this is where, you know, maybe kind of adaptations to this approach are things like sitting straight up in bed, um, moving to the other side of the bed, flipping over to like the foot of the bed, anything that really kind of tells your body like, look, this is not my sleeping position can be effective in kind of retraining this experience. Um, but, you know, I, it, it's often, it often takes time and, and kind of figuring out what works for people. So what is an uh, interesting aspect is uh, your role as a motivational uh, speaker to these people, because um, it does seem like you sort of need to convince people of the importance of sleep. Not everybody's aware of it. And then, convince them to stick to these somewhat difficult regimens, but with the hope that it's going to be doing a lot more good for them once they, once they can get through it. 
Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. like, I guess I'm at the luxury of like, they, when people come to our clinic, they are acutely aware of how important sleep is, right? Like they like are because of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, you know, in general, um, I think this is where, you know, there's been a lot of great uh, work in getting the, the message out around the importance of sleep. Um, mm-hmm. And so people are kind of more aware of it and kind of the collective consciousness, but then often don't know what to do about it. And, you know, our role as clinicians and behavioral sleep medicine researchers is to try to stave off any impulse to kind of immediately reach for medications. Mm-hmm. What is, what's another, like, what's one more example of uh, uh, some of the advice that you give to folks? Yeah. I mean, you know, and again, like in, in clinic and in this book, I, I talk about it more as like a recipe than a menu, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's like, it works better in combination. And then there's, then you need to give it time to bake, right? Cause it's not like a one-off thing, but, but, uh, but I mean, I think, so there's, so, so we mentioned kind of a couple things already. So uh, the getting up at the same time. And then we talked about kind of not spending excess time in bed, not sleeping and that strategy. I think the other thing that's really important um, is uh, creating a kind of clear transition. Um, You know, that oftentimes people treat their brains like it's their laptop that they can just close down and then it's like asleep for the night. And um, and, you know, a lot of that is a function of our, our busy lives, but we do need to kind of mark these transitions for kind of, you know, towards rest and restoration. Um, and in part, it's, it's to kind of allow your uh, body to wind down to kind of amplify that parasympathetic nervous system that's so important for kind of facilitating sleep um, and in creating, again, more environmental cues that help your body know what's happening. So, you know, like I, our brains are like, just, they're like predicting machines, right? They're like taking in so much information and trying to kind of make predictions about how best to use metabolic resources. And I don't think sleep is any different that, you know, we need to be able to kind of make things as predictable as possible. And so for some people, it's things like, um, you know, people have their own kind of ritualistic bedtime routines typically. And I think that's partly why um, as we, you know, getting back to our uh, beginning of our discussion around stress and sleep, why stress doesn't play as big of a role is because we have these rituals that help regulate the sleep process. But, you know, I mean, kind of dimming the lights, kind of, you know, putting away your work, kind of getting into your pajamas, brushing your teeth, doing whatever with, you know, if you have a partner, like spending time, you know, whatever it is that you do, like those things, that consistency and pairing it with like the sleep experience is really important, right? Like it's, it's like, and I, I think it's super unrecognized as like such a key thing. Like I think we, you know, readily as humans think that we're kind of in control of all of these things that go on in our world. But it turns out like, you know, our brain is reacting to lots of things in the environment that tell us what to feel and what to do next. And, and I think the transition is a, is a real critical part of that. And, uh, you know, you know, one of the things that uh, people will need to be doing if they're changing these behaviors is to acquire a habit that's going to be a lasting habit, right? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's various research about how long it takes to acquire a habit. I'm, I'm curious as to as to what you see as the amount of time that it might take someone to, to get into a place where, you know, they're 
they're comfortable going forward and and they they won't revert back again mm. what, or like you know they do you always have regressions there can be life events or things like that but you know maybe you know some research has suggested a couple months you know of you know repeated practice to, so that it'll become automatic enough that it continues um just curious as to as to how you see patients after yeah yeah i mean that's a, that's a great question and i mean i you know i think the unfortunate reality is that you know people that have insomnia are at increased risk of having insomnia again like it's like it seems to be like a predisposition um in some cases and so um, but I think that's why, you know, CBTI is particularly effective and, and the data would support this, that like, you know, the long-term in the long-term it, people kind of outperform with respect to sleep, you having this treatment compared to kind of a medication, right? Because you actually learn tools to, for the next time. Um, I mean, I think for most people, uh, the, the treatment is, this treatment is effective. Um, you know, certainly I think the, the, like the data would suggest that it's, you know, on average 60% of people find this effective, which is much higher than sleep medications. Um, though I think, you know, I think for certain clinics, they probably, it's even above and beyond that. Cause that's kind of the average and, you know, not all, all people carry this out the same, but it, it typically takes, um, you know, five, six weeks of doing this. Um, the, the, my, my experience is that the, the time in bed restriction is like the thing that is the most powerful, um, because it's so deeply embedded in our biology. And so people are able to do it. If people are able to kind of put their bedtime much later than it used to be. And again, this is all kind of determined by their sleep diary. So it's personalized in that way Though we never restrict, um, time in bed below five hours. Um, you know, if people are able to do that, you know, they can have, you know, rapid success. Um, you know, but I mean, it, it, it is also true that these other pieces have to be incorporated. I always say that like, you could do all these things. And then if you had an espresso right before bed, like it probably wouldn't matter. Um, right. but, uh, and then, and then I will say like, I guess in my experience, probably, you know, every two months, someone that I had seen in the past, like emails me and needs to get like a refresher. Right. Because like life happens and, um, you know, people feel confident when they leave. We go over all the kind of tools and we talk about like next steps and what you would do if this or that happened. But like, look, it's it, it happens. And I mean, the good news is that like these are tools and that these are things that, you know, people have had experience potentially mastering. And so there's no reason to think that they can't just get back on track fall out of the habit at some point, but you know how to get back on again if you need to. Yeah. And then, you know, I honestly like, and I, I don't know, I mean, this is just my personal feeling, but like, like life is hard. Like I don't have value judgment on like what you can and cannot do. Like I just want to like give people the information based in like the sleep science, like try to meet people halfway to like improve it a little bit. And if that's what they, that feels like the right place for them right now and they're satisfied, like, that's, that's fine. And you know, if, if they feel differently in the future, like I'll just be sitting in front of this computer still then too. So, you know, we can always get, get back into it because, you know, I like, like people have to manage a lot of things. And, and I mean, I feel, I think the anxiety about their sleep can, can oftentimes just make, and, and, and not kind of doing everything perfectly can actually do more harm than good. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I try to be like as compassionate as possible. It must be hard for you sometimes seeing, uh, 
you know, knowing the long-term health benefits and, um, and, and, you know, knowing that a good night's sleep can put a lot of these things back together and, you know, um, improve daily life in so many different ways that it must be, I don't know, must be. You know, it's, it's funny that you say that because it's, I, I really do. It's, it's, I think about this a lot because, you know, we try to get people um, to focus on how to improve their sleep, right? Like that's all our research is about is like, you know, what happens when you don't get the sleep you need? And like, if we improve your sleep, like look how much better things are. But then in clinic, you know, you're trying to get people to like, stop worrying about your sleep. Like that's the problem. (laughs) It's like, you're, you're like worrying about it so much. And, and so, you know, we're, it's, it's like this delicate balance, right? Like I, I feel, I'm like a strong sleep advocate. Like I think it is the, it's like the thing that people can do. It's the glue that like holds our life together. But um, also when people are kind of like hyper-focused on it, like it completely undermines the whole system. So I always, I always say like, you know, no one ever wonders even how sleep works until it stops. And then mm. you become like so focused. And, and, and so through these sleep diaries and through kind of the cognitive kind of, uh, strategies that we use we try to get people to recognize that like look like sleep isn't the end all and be all of your life like lots of things go into whether how you you have a good day or a bad day like it's not just about sleep and so you know in trying to deliver that message it's like dialing it back for people with insomnia because it it is clearly one of the contributors to their problem well that seems like maybe a good place to start to wrap it up here um thinking about uh, the future and thinking about where things are going uh, on the research side, Eric, I'm curious if you're, if there's anything you're really excited about in terms of whether it's your own research or things that you see going on in the field, advances that are happening, things that might be better in a couple of years than they are today. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, you know, I mean, I think, you know, technology will certainly contribute to kind of some of the advancements around kind of understanding sleep architecture and kind of all of the kind of deep um, kind of electrical signals that we can get around the brain and and what that might mean for sleep and for health. Um, And so I'm excited about kind of learning more about that as people kind of do work in that space. Um, And, you know, I think, um, you know, we're, we're learning more and more about kind of the role of sleep and neurodegenerative diseases, right? So like, you know, certainly the you know most exciting discovery in like the last five years in sleep has been around the glymphatic system and the importance role that sleep plays in, in helping clear out metabolites in the brain that um, are linked to, you know, the pathophysiology of, of or the pathology of um, Alzheimer's disease, things like beta amyloid and, and stuff like that, that seem to be that sleep plays like a clear role. So like, you know, other than rather than being kind of this population link, there's like a clear mechanism that might be at play, which is, you know, a great advance um, in our work. Uh, we're, you know, I'm, you know, one, like on the clinical side, really interested in, in kind of testing digital therapeutics to scale up um, this, these types of treatments and who they work for and who they don't. And, and, and like, can we kind of move the, the science and the treatment along, um, in those, with those tools? Um, and then, you know, you know, my, my, my heart is always in the, on the immune side of things. And so, you know, we're doing studies. We, we launched a really large study, um, 
around the COVID-19 vaccine. And so we've been following people, like measuring their sleep and lots of other characteristics over time and follow them through their vaccination series and their booster series. And we're going to try to understand some of the, the links between these psychological and behavioral factors, in particular sleep, and how that might impact immune function. And then we've moved into, um, in the context of, of insomnia, um, trying to understand the link between insomnia and cardiovascular disease. And so I've been working with some um, nuclear medicine folks uh, using kind of PET MRI imaging to understand the impact of insomnia on um, inflammation around the heart um, as a way of trying to understand the pathway of how kind of insomnia and maybe hyperarousal of like the sympathetic nervous system might kind of impact the, the types of immune cells that get lodged in the arterial uh, areas uh, that will drive uh, atherosclerosis and and things like that. And so, you know, we're continuing to follow up on all those things, um, which is really exciting and a lot of team science, which is kind of like my jam, so. Well, this has been a, a fascinating discussion. So again, Dr. Eric Prather, uh, new book out, The Sleep Prescription, Seven Days to Unlocking Your Best Rest. Uh, we really appreciate your work and and, uh, stopping by to talk to us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Are there any other places people should go to to look for you, like uh, social media or anything like that? Or, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm on Twitter for as long as it lasts. I'm not sure. Uh, so at at Eric Prather. <laughs> After that, I don't know. Like, get back on MySpace. We'll see you on MySpace.